You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Morning. The Bible reading for this morning is Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I had did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Ben. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Doing good. That is good on a cool Sunday, Sydney morning. Good to be here. I hope you are well. Well, we are in our final week in our series on prayer. Teach us to pray. I hope it's been good. I hope it's been helpful as we've, particularly in the first part of the series, taken the Lord's Prayer line by line each week and dived into the richness that is probably the world's most famous prayer. The last couple of weeks as well, we've expanded the series. We've talked about what to do when we've just made a mess of our lives. What do we do? Something. Base? No? Oh, is it a plane? Whoa. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Already, all I needed to do was say a couple things. Wow, if only. Amazing. <laughs> Last week, Caleb preached a cracker on lament. I don't reckon people have heard many uh, messages on that before. What do we do when life is just not going to plan? When life isn't how we expect it, we, we can be, when we are overwhelmed with maybe the darkness of the world, we can come to God in lament. There are resources for Christians in those circumstances. We left some time open at the end of the series to dive into some questions that might have come up. And one of the, as we explored this great theme of prayer, and something that kept coming up is this, that keeps coming up in the Christian life. And it's this, how do we face times of trouble with peace, with contentment, with rest? As Christians, how do we face these times well? Times of trouble with peace, uh, with contentment, with, with rest. We looked at an answer to that, if you might remember, when we looked at give us today our daily bread. We looked at what we can do is bring our requests to God. Our great Heavenly Father who loves us, we can bring our request to Him. That's called petitionary prayer. 
bring our request to God. We can do that. But is that our only resource when it comes to this issue of facing challenging times? Just bringing our needs to God, which is wonderful. Is that all? No. The ultimate way to have contentment, rest, and peace is this. To worship. To worship. Through worship. How? What does that even mean? You might be thinking that very thing. Well, stay with me this morning because I believe this is going to be a great help. It certainly helped me this week. We're going to use Psalm 95 as our teacher this morning. We're going to walk through this psalm. It's going to teach us about worship. It's going to help us define what worship is and what it isn't. But what worship is, uh, why we should do it, and, and how we do it. How do we cultivate a life of worship? We'll briefly look at that at the end. Are you with me? Let's look at how worship can help us as we face troubling times. First of all, what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about worship? Well, worship is something that engages our whole person. Not, not a, a part, one part of us or most of us. Worship engages our whole person. Firstly, it engages our emotions. Have a look at the beginning of Psalm 95 with me. Is it up on the screen there? Okay, it's behind me. Great. Verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Here, what do we have? We have the language of emotions, don't we? Sing for joy, shout aloud, extol him with music and song. Here, the congregation is worshipping God with their emotions. Some churches do this more than others. I wonder what your experience has been of using our emotions in worship. Uh, some people get freaked out by too much emotion, and others don't understand where there's a lack of it. I think of our Brazilian friends and people from other cultures. They kind of think us a bit odd, us people from Mossman. They don't really understand how we can sing words with such significance and just stand there. I've got a friend of mine who's from Burundi, and he says, he often says, Do you guys believe what you're singing? <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. Um, yeah, the chosen frozen, that's what some people call us. <laughs> you're just standing there. How can you not be stirred? Now, of course, different cultures worship differently, don't they? Right? We don't want to be overly prescriptive. But I tell you what, the Bible's pretty clear. Our emotions, our affections need to be involved when we worship our great God. The church I grew up in was fantastic, wonderful. But I tell you what, we didn't really talk about emotions. We didn't really talk about affections, emotions, and the intersection of faith. Right? The focus was on reason and on truth, which is great, really important, good foundations. But I, I, I really... Emotions, feelings were only talked about in the way that they said, well, they can't really be trusted. And I guess that is true. Uh, we don't want emotions, feelings to be driving the train, to be driving us. But I tell you what, we are missing a huge part of what it means to be human if we aren't engaging our emotions when we worship God. Or what Jonathan Edwards called our affections, even deeper than that, right? Our affections. We aren't talking about getting hyped up 
We're not talking about emotionalism. But I tell you what, a cold heart towards God is a dangerous thing. What does the psalm say? What does it say? Sing for, it says, sing for meh. Shout for mediocrity. Shout for apathy. Come before him with whatever's. No, of course not. Sing for joy. Shout aloud. Come with thanksgiving. One of the commentators I read uh, this week said, sing for joy, make a joyful noise. That, that language is almost too tame. We're talking about a war cry here. That's what they said. Shout aloud. Should we try it? Brazilians are you nodding their head. Yeah. Us, we're going, oh, I don't know, I'm nervous. Here's a question for us, whatever it looks like. What does it mean to have our hearts stirred toward God? That's a question to think about. What does it mean to have our heart, as John Wesley had his heart strangely warmed? What does it mean to have our heart stirred toward God? <laughs> I remember the um, first time I went to the U.S., spending some time with with. Christian musicians. Now they're musicians, so they're a weird lot. We're a weird lot. But I remember gathering around and praying for the first time with them. And every time since we pray together, they would say, Jesus, we love you. And I think I was in my 20s, but I think that was maybe the first time I'd ever heard someone pray like that. Jesus, we love you. I think I always pray like that now. Jesus, we love you. We are called to worship God with our affections, with our emotions. But that's not all. We're also called to worship God with our will. Check out verse 6 with me. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Worship involves our emotions, our affections. It also involves our will. This is the language of submission, right? Kneel, bow down. Our worship here is taking on a physical reality. Let us kneel before the Lord. Now, why kneel? Well, kneeling, of course, is an act of submission, isn't it? In ancient warfare, when you would kneel before your opponent, you were, it's complete vulnerability. You're exposing your neck to them. It doesn't get more vulnerable than that. Complete submission. Kneeling before God, it symbolizes what? Submission to his lordship. You're in control, not me. I'm yours, I trust you, I repent. Your ways are the best ways. I obey you, right? Worship also means obedience. It's possible to display lots of emotion when we sing, to passionately worship God at church and then walk out those doors and never think about God when we make our decisions. Now, I don't know what that is, but that's not worship. Worships more than emotions. And I tell you what, it's more than just religious activity. Just going through the motions. I love the example Jesus gives in Matthew 5, right, of what genuine worship looks like. Matthew 5, 23, therefore, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what should you do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go and be reconciled 
to them. Then come and offer your gift. And what's going on here? Jesus is saying, I'm not really interested in your offering of passionate worship or your religious activity if you need to make something right in your life. You see? Uh, A friend of mine who's much older than me, when he was young, quite young, starting out as a minister, he was an assistant minister, we're talking years ago, in a church, fairly traditional church, but a good church, and he worked for a senior minister that had a bit of a reputation, uh, a bit of a reputation for a fiery temper. And one week, he, de- he, he saw it, he had an altercation with his boss, the senior minister, and he, he let go. And he, he gave the assistant minister an earful, and it wasn't pleasant. The next Sunday, my friend, they were celebrating communion in the worship service together, and my friend was passing out the elements in the communion service. And as he was doing so to the members of the congregation, he felt someone standing next to him. And he turned, and there was his boss. He's like, this is weird. Uh, and, and the senior minister said to him, he, he said to my friend, I can't take part in our communion worship service until I say this to you. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was harsh this week. Would you please forgive me? I've never forgotten that story. He told me that years ago. And he told me that as an older man. He never forgot it. Forget the religious activity. Jesus says, I want your heart. Jesus wants our whole lives, a compartmentalized life just doesn't work because we are one whole person. What part of ourselves are we holding back from God? What parts of ourselves are we holding back from God? God, you can come this far and no further. You can have this bit, but this part is for me. I tell you what, I have been sitting right there in the front row 10, 15 minutes time about to preach and during worship, I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. Before you get up there and talk about forgiveness, talk about grace, you need to ask for forgiveness for the person sitting next to you. Of course, it's Pip, my wife, right? We'd had a fight that morning, totally her fault, but I needed to, of course it was my fault. Holy Spirit at work in me, make it right before you get up there. Worship is obedience, an act of the will. But it's not just this, it's not just emotions, it's also using our mind. Have a look at the end of verse 7 here with me. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. This is reason language. Hear his voice. Listen to him. Do what he says. Don't turn your backs. To worship God means to use our minds as well. When we become Christians, we don't cease to use the minds that God gave gave us. We can use them to worship him. Have you thought about that? We can use our minds to worship him. We can use our mind in so many different ways in different fields. I've heard Christian scientists talk about this, often saying learning more about how the human body works, learning more about how the world works. For them, it's an act of worship. Wow, God is amazing. 
You ever had that experience? People working on mapping the human DNA, the, hum the genome project a couple of decades ago. Imagine being on that team where they discovered every single person that's ever lived has a genetic code in a number in the billions. This is what these people discovered. And some people, Christian folk, on that project called it a holy moment. Oh my goodness, you are amazing, God. We can also use our minds to learn more about God. Of course, in his word. We can read great books, dive into his word. We can go as deep as we want to go. Bible college can be a wonderful place to do this as well. Can expand our minds. I remember driving home from, a, from an evening lecture, one of the first Old Testament lectures I'd had, and just my understanding of who God was deepened so many levels. I'd been a Christian for decades, and I was just in awe of who God was as this wonderful Old Testament lecturer opened up the scriptures for me. Wow, blown away. God, you're amazing. Christian faith, you can go as deep as you want to go with our minds. We're never called to abandon our reason when we follow Christ. Okay, so we've looked at, pretty exhaustively, worship involves our entire being. So then what actually is it then? What is it? With our entire person, worship is giving something ultimate value, ascribing ultimate worth to something. This is special above everything else and living accordingly. That's worship. Does that make sense? So how do we do that? Well, what does the, the person who wrote this psalm do? Can we have a look together? Let me go through it quickly. What does he do? He takes an inventory of God. Look at it with me. Verse 1, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, extolling music and song. Why? Why should we? Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all our gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land. God's amazing. That's why we should. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God. Language of intimacy. He's our God. We are the people of his pasture. He takes care of us. The flock under his care. He's our shepherd. He'll never leave us or forsake us. That's why. You see what the psalmist is doing here? Reminding himself, reminding others of why God is worthy of our praise. Why should we give God everything? Why should we give him our affections, the, the right to make decisions in our lives? Why should we worship him with our minds? Simply, the psalmist would say, because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. And the peace and the rest and contentment that we all seek comes from taking an inventory of God. You are worthy because, you are worthy because reflecting on all he is and all he's done until there's an explosion of worship in our hearts, right? That's stoking the flames of worship. Let me explain a bit more. Um, I wonder if you've seen the show Antiques Roadshow. Do you know it? My goodness, how old am I using this illustration? 
But I'll admit, I kind of like it. The best part is when the, the antiques dealer gives the valuation, don't you reckon? Because I don't know, is this trash or treasure? If you don't know this show, the show's about lots of random people bringing junk pretty much from their house and, and lining up all day in some beautiful location in the UK to get it valued by an antiques dealer. And as I said, the best part is when they say, oh, this is worth you know, 20 pounds, or and the look of disappointment on their face, all worth, you know, 25,000 pounds, the look of joy. It's a great show. Not really, but it's all right. I'm so old. Okay, now imagine with me for a moment. Imagine an older lady is watching the show on TV, and she thinks, oh, yeah, that ring my great-great-aunt gave me, or handed down through the family, oh, I'm going to take that in when the Antiques Roadshow comes to town. And so she does. She lines up all day. This thing's been living in a drawer most of her life, but she thinks, I know, I'm going to get it out of the drawer and get it valued. You probably know where this is going. She stands in line all day, and the Antiques dealer, who's a jeweler, picks it up, dusts it off, puts in that little looking glass thing they do, and looks at it for some time looking it over and over, he notices the colour, the cut, the clarity, the carrot, like that. And finally exclaims, oh, this is the most precious thing, the most valuable thing we've ever seen on this show. This is the lost something, I don't know, whatever it is, lost stone that's been lost to civilization. This is amazing. Ultimate value. And the jeweler asks her, did you realize you had something of immeasurable worth in your possession? And what's her answer? No. It's been living in a drawer. Now imagine this lady's interviewed at the end of the show. This really excited interviewer says, what, what's going to change for you now? You have in your possession something of immense value. Is your life going to change? And what if she says, no, not really. I wonder if this is often how we are with God. I wonder, do we truly fathom the treasure we have in Christ? Do we realize what we have in him. Do we live in accordance with the value of Christ? See, the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Right? How much is God worth to you? To worship God is to recognize how great a treasure he actually is. By taking an inventory, recognizing his worth, look at all he's given us. Look at how amazing God is, how much he offers us in Christ. That's worship. See, so many people treat God like that woman treated that treasure. She had it, but she kind of had it in a drawer. It didn't affect her life at all. She barely thought about it. Yeah, I believe in God. I kind of pray sometimes. I've been to church a little bit. 
The difference is between believing and believing and worshipping. You see the difference? Living in accordance with the worth that transforms our life. That gives us peace and contentment and satisfaction. Hey, when we face troubling times, we can come to our Father and we can bring things before him in prayer. What a gift. And he hears and he answers. But I tell you what, when we worship God, it puts everything else in proper perspective. Because when we recognize that if we have Christ, we have everything. And then this thing I'm begging God for, actually, when I, when I gaze into the beauty and the treasure of, of Jesus, I realize, oh, that other thing, that's just icing on the cake. That's just a bonus. I have Jesus. I am his and he is mine. You see the difference worship makes? How foolish would it be, right, if the news that that woman received on Antiques Roadshow, it didn't affect her life? We'd think you're crazy if she, her life hadn't changed at all. Yet how foolish would we be to receive the gift of Christ and his grace and do nothing with it? Now, here's something interesting about worship I want to take a moment to talk about. Worship is not just a religious thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's not just something religious people do. Although the word worship really does sound like it, though, doesn't it? Every single person worships. I don't care if you're hardcore atheist or the most religious person ever. We all worship. We don't maybe use that word, though. You could say as humans, we are programmed to worship, or let's use something else, to find meaning and purpose in something in life. We are meaning makers. We all worship. We all make our lives about something. How do we tell what it is? Like, how can you tell? Well, let's go to the very wise Harry Potter for answers. You may remember in the first book and first movie, Harry stumbles into a room he's not supposed to at Hogwarts in the middle of the night, and he comes across what looks like a mirror. He looks into it, and he sees himself, but not just himself. He sees his parents next to him. He looks around. They're not actually around him, but in the mirror they are. He looks into it, and wow, he sees his parents. Now, if you know anything about the Harry Potter series, you'll know that his parents died when he was a baby defending him. So seeing his parents like this is amazing. He looks and he sees his parents cuddling him, giving him affection, and he is overjoyed. He's overcome. He's, he thinks this is totally amazing. He runs to get his best friend, Ron, because he wants to show him. And he goes and gets him. Ron stands in front of the mirror, but he doesn't see Harry's parents. What does Ron see? Ron sees himself crowned as a sports champion. And getting all the love, affection, and approval that comes with it. He says, whoa, I'm a, I'm a Quidditch champion. Wow. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is the mirror of Erised. That's desire spelled backwards. Pretty cool, isn't it? Stand in front of it and you will see what you want more than anything else in the world. 
For Harry, it was his parents. For Ron, the approval and acclaim being a sports champion would give. The mirror shows you the deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. If you were standing in front of it, what would you see? Think about it for a moment. What would you see? That's what we worship. What do you daydream about? What do you wake up thinking about? What, if taken away from you, you would think, you know what, maybe life isn't worth living? What do you think, you know, if I had that, then I'd be happy. I'm not now, but if I had that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd have joy and meaning and purpose if I just had that. What we answer with, that's what we worship. And here's the thing. What we worship When we worship something, we give it great power. Great power. Harry, he's at that mirror as often as he can. He steals away moments as often as he can to just sit in front of that mirror. Dumbledore finds him there and says, Oh, yeah, this is what happens a lot with this mirror. We've got to hide it. We've got to put it away. Why? Because people waste away in front of it. Consumed by their desire for whatever is looking back at them in the mirror. Oh, it's pretty. Yeah, that is so true. See, one thing I find just continually amazing about Christianity is that the God who created us also gave us astounding freedom and choice. Right? Rather than command us to love him like robots or what my son would call an NPU or something, is that right? A non NPC. Oh man, I got it wrong. An NPC. Right? Like a robot. Instead of that, he gave us freedom to love and worship him or not. To love and worship other things. To love and worship him would be best for us. It would give us what our hearts desire, yet. He will never force himself upon someone. We've got the freedom to explore, even if that freedom means unhappiness. The Bible tells us clearly we are made to worship God and will never experience deep peace and joy and contentment unless we channel our inexhaustible desire upon the inexhaustible God. See, to worship Jesus is to worship the only thing that will never let you down. To worship the only thing that will never exhaust you with its seeking of approval, because we already have the approval of Christ. To worship Jesus is to worship the only thing that will never crush you with its expectations. Jesus will satisfy us when we get him and forgive us when we fail him. Friends, I can offer you nothing else like that. What else can offer us that?